You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the conservative conscience. And yes, this is your respite from groupthink. Welcome back to the conservative conscience here at Conservative Review, powered by Westwood One's podcast network. And it is Thursday already. Thank God for Thursday, but Friday is better. Um, my voice is, is really about to go here, so we'll see how this holds up today. As I always say, the worst thing about marriage and family, really the only bad thing about marriage, the greatest institution of mankind, is that you get your spouse's illnesses. So it started with the youngest, and then all the kids got it, my wife got it, and then I, I was like, I can't afford this. I need my voice. <laughs> I talk all day. Uh, so I loaded up on Airborne and Zycam and stuff like that, but... And it really it did work in forestalling it, but you know you, you can't get over that when the kids slobber on you and everything, and you got to blow their noses. There's just no way around it, no matter how careful you are. So here I am. I was going to have a guest today, just to ease uh, some of the work in my throat. Joseph Humeyer, our Latin American advisor and expert here at the Conservative Conscience. But he couldn't join me because he's actually in Guatemala right now, or Guatemala, as he says, meeting with um, the Morales government. So he's going to have some good reporting for us. Actually, just FYI, he showed me a picture. He sent me a picture, and hopefully I'll be able to post this, of a the fir- – I don't know. I don't know if it's the first of its kind, but a Muslim hospital being inaugurated in Guatemala City with U.S. Embassy personnel there as well as – a Democrat congresswoman who was in attendance. So, you know, when the media tells you, oh, what are you talking about? There's no Muslims in Latin America. I don't know. Believe me, there is a growing trend um, that is very disturbing. And again, you know, not that Muslims can't have hospitals. It's, It's often these institutions, when they're very public, they are funded by not good sources. And, you know, it's something that, Again, when, whenever you have migration northward and you have an open border for asylum, they're not just coming from Latin America. And even in Latin America, you do have Muslims now, and that is going to be a problem. It's funny. Uh, I was sending around, and you could see on my Twitter feed, an L.A. Times article from December 2016. Again, just keeping up with our thesis from uh, yesterday's show – the media is willing to address the truth before it becomes political. So the LA Times talked about, yeah, there's a growing trend of people from all over the world coming to Latin America to come northward. They go to Guatemala and come through uh, Mexico, and, and they come to our border. And they reported that as fact, LA Times. Now it's like, what do you mean? There's, there's no other people to worry about. So you know that's where we are. By the way, it was Congresswoman Norma Torres who was there. Um, I believe she's from California. I don't, honestly, I don't know the names of all the Democrat House members. I know most all the Republican ones, but that is what's going on there. But today I wanted to zoom back from the typical, well, not so typical, the more just news of the day, dissecting policy to have more of a thinky thematic show on a state of play of where we are as a movement, what it means to be a conservative, what are we trying to conserve? And then if we have time, we'll get back to some tidbits. But in the meantime, I'm going to link to in show notes, we have a landing page of all our immigration slash caravan content. So I'm, I, I'm, I'm going to keep churning out a lot of the stuff you heard on the show yesterday, a lot of new stuff, data points, dissecting every aspect of the immigration issue, including, by the way, the public health concern with diseases. That's really an area that the media, the media doesn't want to talk about. Um, but today's show is about resetting baselines. The fundamentals of how we got here and where we head and what we are as a movement or a lack of a movement. I got it from Chip Roy in a really good article. 
actually pretty well done for Politico. I'm going to link to, again, in our show links, the Politico interview with Chip Roy, meet the next Ted Cruz. And he'll be better than Ted Cruz. I've, I've told you before, Chip, we've had on the show twice, a dear friend of mine for a long time. Um, I cannot think of a better human being in the entire America to run for office than than him. Not just because of who he is as a person, but because he also has that experience working for Ken Paxton, even Rick Perry, even John Cornyn, and then obviously Ted Cruz. He knows the Senate and the House and the the games and the establishment backwards and forwards. And the media is starting to take notice that he is running on many of our themes on policy innovation, policy entrepreneurship, affirmatively what we do believe in, what we expect to accomplish. And he talked about resetting the baseline, that when he comes in there, he plans to not just be another conservative voting congressman, but to spawn a national discussion, first starting with the conservative members of the House and the conservative outside groups, of what is the baseline on any given issue, on the issues in totality, what we've accomplished, what, what, what we've slid backwards, and what we expect. We've talked a lot in recent weeks and months about how the entire body politic keeps shifting further to the left. And the more it shifts to the left and the more the Democrats and the left get radically to the left, the more, ironically, the right, with their soft bigotry of low expectations, is suffice with not, not just incre- – we're not talking about incremental victories, but no victories and actually sliding backwards, albeit not as backwards as the Democrats would have taken us at any given time. And like frogs in the boiling water, we just don't – we become acclimated to the new norm, and we're always on to the next fight. So we forget about the fact that we lost all the others and that we're inevitably, inevitably going to lose the next fight. But then we're going to have to forget about that in order to mobilize for the next one that we can't even wake up from our drunk stupor from our political morphine, from our frog in the boiling water, whatever analogy you want to use, and jump out and realize what we're doing is not working. What is it we're trying to conserve? What is it we're trying to conserve? Whether it's government intervention into our lives, liberties, economy, spending, the size and scope of government, the cascading effects of market distortions, healthcare is the biggest one, as we speak about so much so, and and this is the life passion of Chip Roy. Whether it's foreign policy and our backwards immigration system, we're going backwards with every elusive step that we think we're shedding more light on something, we're always fighting yesterday's battles when the left already moved on and squeezed out everything they can from that um, given given stratagem or that given initiative, and now they're on to bigger and greater things that we're not confronting, thereby failing to deconstruct the previous victories of the left as well as failing to deal with the current trajectory we're all lost. A friend of mine, James Walner, has, has just a, a blog you would have never heard of. I'm going to link to this as well, if I could remember. James Walner is a friend of mine as well as Gaston Mooney, my co-founder, who's now president of CRTV. And they work together in the Senate in their time for the Senate Steering Committee. And what Walner is a really deep-thinking guy. This is the type of guy you want in a movement, deep and broad, long-term, the perfect person to, to rip us out of this frog-in-the-boiling-water dynamic that you know, as time goes on, we can't even hold the ground that the left ones held. And yet we think we're getting more conservative. You know, As we think we're fixing the judiciary, it's getting even worse because of the new tactics – and again, that's happening every day, by the way. Yesterday, another Bush-appointed judge said sanctuary cities are the law of the land. Another deportation was blocked. But um, 
This is at his blog, but then he published it in the Washington Examiner. James Wallner is, um, like I said, he's he's probably the biggest Senate nerd in the country now. He knows everything about Senate procedures and the rules. He was actually he he told me last time I spoke with him that he was planning on writing a book on the history of the Senate. So that well, I, I say this because this is the type of guy that really has his finger on the barometer, on the thermometer, on on the temperature, the the, the wind pressure. Are we going forwards or backwards? And um, you know, he starts off talking about Russell Kirk, and basically goes into the fact that you know the origins of the Republican Party's present predicament can be placed to the period when post-war conservatism was at its height of success. While conservatives have always been divided. They mostly agreed in the 1950s to put their theoretical differences aside to defeat communism abroad and stem the tide of democratic socialism at home. Yet the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989 and the Soviet Union's subsequent demise deprived conservatives of the glue that held them together for decades despite all their differences. I want to interrupt here. This is – I was really taken in by this article because it puts specific time – data points and rationale behind a lot of what I've been saying recently, how since Reagan, we've all been lost and we haven't had an affirmative vision. So this in itself is a a very good theory that even to begin with, even even at the height, we were always, almost always an anti-movement, always combating something. We really had dirty little, an undertow of dirty laundry between us that, hey, we got a lot of people that really aren't conservative, or there's a big disagreement over what conservatism is on a given issue and what we're fighting for, but we all know we got to defeat communism. And that's really what persisted for, for four decades. And it ended with Reagan. And then, you know, coinciding with that is when we had the Bushes, which really put us backwards. And that's kind of really sets the tone for where we are today. Okay, now that you get back into power, what is it you want to do? What is your baseline? Is your baseline merely preventing the left from their their, their next uh, thing, but owning everything they have until now? And then when you inevitably lose to the left, maybe not this time, but within the next few tries, you'll be on to the next thing and the next thing. He has another interesting quote I want to show you here, another very interesting data point that I think explains a lot. Making matters worse, their 1994 takeover of Congress prompted many Republicans to prioritize questions of public policy and electoral politics over working through the issues over which they were divided. Republicans instead chose to de-emphasize those issues and rehash old varieties, old verities while crafting an inoffensive policy agenda they could use to win elections. Somewhere amid the countless Interesting battles, autopsies, purges, and reinventions, beautifully written, Republicans lost sight of what it was that they were trying to conserve in the first place. Consequently, they failed to update their intellectual tradition where they needed to account for the emergence of new problems in a rapidly changing world. So that, that, that's what he says here. And, and the thing is, what I find amazing is that you know, now the glue that binds everyone is fighting the liberal media, fighting the violence of the left, fighting the outlandishness of the left. But ironically, what we don't realize is, dude, on a lot of the important issues, most of the people that are supposed to be our warriors, elected members, unelected think tank people, and certainly those with the megaphones, the conservative media on Fox, they actually fundamentally subscribe to a lot of what the left believes in, albeit in a less visceral tone and maybe not as much at a given time. But that's a recipe for always sliding leftward. And heck, I would venture to say, with all due respect, James, I love you, but your boss, whom I, who, Jim DeMint, whom I admired for, for many years and still do – on an issue dealing with crime, which was the – I mean that along with communism was, was literally the Reagan era. I mean we can't even agree on that anymore, and he's you know, taking the Soros route on that. Well, a lot of it I think is really just money and groupthink, but that in itself is part of the problem. 
We don't have an agenda so that the agenda is wherever the money goes, wherever we feel winning elections goes. But he made a very good point that, see, for four decades, Republicans never controlled the House. So a lot of our activism was in the culture and the issues. Once they took the House, then you know they've had the House for 20 of the last 24 years, and it's all been, okay, we got to keep it. we got to keep it. We've got to win elections. And every November, and it's very appropriate to talk about this as we sit here now, it's all about, oh my gosh, we can't allow the Democrats to win. And we, and we unite. But what I want to talk about is and this is the discussion we really need because, you know, the election is going to be all over very, very soon, less than two weeks. What happens on November 7th? Whether Republicans get crushed, whether they surprisingly win the House back, uh, keep the House, or whether they hold their own but narrowly lose the House and advance in the Senate but lose governorships. I mean, it doesn't matter. What is it we want to do? You know, I told a lot of you, and I really appreciate, I've I've gotten a lot of clever emails back from you, to write on two pieces of paper and write down how many Democrats, if any, ever dissent from their party in a meaningful way on a a single major issue of the top ten issues. Really, in, in a philosophical way. Not that they're a little bit toned down because they're in a deep red state, but they really still you know, abide by the Democrat platform. Talking about really dissent. And it's really not really a single Democrat and a sing, single issue. There's officially two or three pro-life Democrats in the House out of 190-whatever Democrats, but they don't lift a finger to fight for it. It's just a name only. They grew up as Catholics or something, and they, they just can't officially say they're pro-choice, but in all but name only they are. Um. So on the other hand, I said, take out a piece of paper and show me how many Republicans dissent from the official Republican platform that's supposed to be conservative on a single major issue. And you'll find that it's the opposite. Really, you have to have a piece of paper for how many Republicans do not dissent on a single issue. And really, there's practically no one. You know, even Mike Lee is bad on the, the refundable tax credits and a couple other issues, and certainly crime. And he's the best. And uh, you know, I'll take how many believe in the platform fully on fifty percent of the most important issues. You'll find a handful. And this imbalance is really where it is because we're just a coalition of not communism. Then, you know, not Obama and now not the media. But ironically, we're giving into their hands. Our movement is very much like a bunch of dogs. No offense to dog lovers, but what I mean is a dog that always looks backwards rather than forwards is always looking backwards at their owner and the leash. Well, we're looking at our owner and the leash, which is the owner being the liberal media and the leash being the controlled opposition. As much as we're fighting the media, we're controlled by them because we don't pursue our own agenda. We don't look forward. We look backwards. That's the problem. What is our baseline on health care? Now our next thing is Obamacare and everything before it and everything mixed with it for 50 years we're okay with. We just got to prevent... And we're okay with the Medicaid expansion, just not Medicare for all. What? I mean, that, that's where we're at? That's the new baseline? We need to reset the baseline. We were appalled by the spending levels in the Obama administration. Now we've blown them out. Blown them out. We're okay with that? And that's the new baseline? No, we will reset that baseline. Part of what's happening is, if you look, Axios. Oh, and by the way, I'm sorry to jump around. Just one quick note on that. You know what's ironic? The Wall Street Journal has an article out today with an analysis that 50% of the GDP growth is from increased government spending. So just wanted you guys to know that, which is, again, another morphine. We're championing the economy. And as you know, and look, we're going to have BEA is going to put out the first preliminary estimate of quarter three GDP tomorrow, and you know we'll, we'll see the numbers. 
And but you remember what I said after the second quarter? I said, look, you know, let's see if it endures. But we've had spikes and sugar highs before from government spending and things like that. But enduring long term growth has been very hard because we permanently have reset the baseline where we have this managed and planned economy that's very inefficient. So you could sometimes achieve your highest level of efficiency in that inefficient market, but it's still inefficient and a misallocation of resources. And then with the growing debt, that's totally just creating a sinkhole in our investments. You know, because the more debt we have, the more desperate we get to issue the treasuries, the more it raises the rates, which they're increasing, the more private and public and international investment is going to go into crap, essentially. <laughs> you know, servicing debt, the treasuries, in order to buy Democrat votes and expand government rather rather than the proper goods and services that are going to be the most efficient economic drivers. So even in a good time, we're not actualizing what we could and should be achieving in our economy. But anyway, what I want to talk about is you go, you go to Axios had an interesting article about one big thing, liberals get a 2020 ideas arms race. And you know, they talk about Medicare for all, reforming capitalism, taxing carbon, redistributing more money, baby bonds. That's Cory Booker's idea, literally cradle to grave, you know, free tuition, guaranteed jobs, abolish ICE. They know exactly what they want to do. Now, ironically, Republicans and, you know, all the grifters and personalities that have megaphones, they're talking about all this stuff. But that's the problem. If we're talking about fighting theoretically what Democrats might at some point want to implement and not fight the dumpster fire socialism that we already have, the dumpster fire bed immigration policies we already have, the dumpster fire bed foreign policies we already have, we're losing. We're always sliding in their tug of war into their territory because they're the ones with the ideas. We're the ones with the retorts. Where are our affirmative ideas? Resetting the baseline. We always define the baseline by what, by what they want to do at any given moment. Well, that's extremely radical. And with that, I wanted to explain my take on something else going on in the news. Two, actually, two other things. You know, there's been a lot of talk about Trump saying, I'm a proud nationalist. And among my colleagues, there's been two reactions, and they're both wrong in my view. Well, one is not really wrong, but you know, I'm not as worried about it as they are. One that clearly is wrong is those that embrace it, the label. Oh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a nationalist. Yeah, obviously, you know, this is a mature conservative audience. By now, you well know that you know what we support here is a sovereign, secure nation state built upon individual liberty, patriotism, and constitutionalism, and the social compact. Not the blood and soil nationalism. We, we understand the, the, the difference between that, and that's obvious. It should be obvious to anyone. So a lot of people just mindlessly embrace that. And then, and then some of the people, my colleagues that are closer to where I am and, and coming from the right place, they're like appalled. Oh my gosh, Daniel, this is, this is the end of us. I mean, we have Trump and you know, our colleagues embracing nationalism. And I agree with them in theory, as I just said, but – I'm not really that worried about it because it's all born out of the fact that we don't know who we are. We don't know what our baseline is. We, we have an identity crisis. So as such, with that identity crisis comes along just a cloddish, clumsy latching on to labels. I'm not bothered by it like worried because Trump's not you know latching on to capital and nationalism. Where is this coming from? It's the baseline. It's what happens is the society we live in, the left, is so extreme that they are deviating from just not nationalism, even sovereignty or conservatism, just what classical liberalism was. They're deviating from what a nation state is. They're deviating from policies that were, not, were, that were never under dispute or in contention ever in our history, challenging the basic assumptions of men and nation, um, of, 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 of sexual identity, of marriage, of the borders of a nation state. 
So relative to them, if you if you're just a ping pong, a pin like a back and forth pinata, you don't have your own affirmative path. You're just reacting. So you're gonna try to, in your own terms, express yourself in a way that's the most emphatic. Oh, they're open borders. I'm a, I'm a nationalist, and and it it comes. I understand. It comes from a good place. It's just a lack of intellectual understanding, because they don't know how to define themselves. Because back in the day, now obviously you know. All of my detractors call me the arch intellectual chief, uh, you know, of, of this generation of nationalism. But the irony is, I reject it because what I'm pushing is just straight up. It's not any ism. It's not even conservatism. It, it's just like, uh, dude. I, I mean, like, you know, it, what is someone who believes in Y and X chromosomes? Are they a liberal or a conservative? Well, no, they're, they're just like have brains and they're you know common sense. What is someone who believes in just you need a nation state? What type of nation state we're going to have a liberal or a conservative, a more socialist one, a nationalist one? That's another question. But the baseline that you have a country was never in contention until recently. Barbara Jordan was a Congressional Black Caucus member, socialist, but understood you need a nation state to have socialism even. And she was saying everything I'm saying. No one could call her a nationalist. But because the left is so extreme and because the right has lost sense of where the baseline is and they're just reacting to the left, so they'll just latch on to any label. So I'm not as concerned about the label because it really is kind of meaningless in this era because it's ironically defining what we believe in even though it's not the right dictionary definition of it. But, you know, perception becomes reality. It's the same thing like, you know, this Americans first. I was using the term long before Trump because I think it just very much encapsulates the problem we have with our priorities with immigration and foreign policy falling on other people's dumpster fires. You always, you know, it it's, ties into the social compact. You have to put your people first as, as, a, uh, as a government, particularly at a public policy level, you know, as opposed to private charity or whatever private missionary work. So when it comes to the, this question of nationalism, I, I always I, – I had no problem with that term, Amer- American first. It's just because of the sensitivity of Charles Lindbergh latching on to that. Rather, rather than saying America first, I, I, I was always careful to say Americans first. I just tweaked it. You know, Now Trump has made just America first kind of a – you know, a bromide. I, I'm not going to sit and pull my hair out over Charles Lindbergh because it becomes a reality in this era, almost 100 years later, what we're trying to define. And, you know, I'm not going to get caught up on labels so much. But what I'm trying to say is there's another problem that I think is more important that we're missing, not the label. It's what are we? We're a label, we're a sticker without a package. We're a uh, marketing strategy without a product or service. We're an icing without a cake. We're a harmony without a melody. That is our problem. What is it that we are? What is it we seek to conserve? You know, as James Walner ends in this uh, beautiful essay he wrote, in the year after the conservative mind appeared, written by uh, Russell Kirk, Kirk wrote, quote, tradition cannot suffice to guide a society if it is not understood and expounded and if need be modified by the better intelligences and consciences uh, in every generation. Republicans must remember their, well, the, end quote, this is James now talking, Republicans must remember their tradition and recover their disposition to conserve it. Fundraising, message test, testing, and get out the vote efforts are no substitute for the power of ideas. No matter what happens in November, Republicans in Congress will remain unable to enact an agenda if they continue to ignore the ideas on which the agenda is supposedly based. Amen, amen, and amen. That's my point. Look. There's a lot of very important facets to policy, politics, and communications, and a movement, and a revolution, and a anything, and a party, and everyone plays an important role. You know, let me give you an example. One of my extended colleagues here at CRTV, one of the personalities, is Ali Stuckey. Um, you think I'm young? She's really young. And she put out this three-minute 
mock DNC ad, kind of in the voice of like a leftist Democrat woman of why to vote for Democrats. And it was a parody, and it was contrasting, yeah, you know, Republicans believe in in police and – because they're a bunch of racists, and, and it, it was really well done. I passed it around to a lot of people. You need that type of work in any movement. You gotta have punchy things um, to communicate with people, particularly young people. If there's anything that's gonna rope young people in, I think it's it's a video like that. It was very well done, and she's very talented at these parodies. She did a couple others, and and that's good. And you need that. You need that. You need a marketing strategy. If you don't have a marketing strategy, you can't sell your product. But by golly, what's a marketing strategy if you don't have the product? And this is not a rip on Allie. I mean, she's doing her thing. But you know, I couldn't help but see when she was like, and you know, contrasting the two sides. And I was saying to myself, look, her messaging is great, but like quietly, if only Republicans actually did this. I can't ignore the fact when I see Republicans. When I see what I see, I can't unsee them. I can't unsee the fact that most Republicans of influence in in the donor class, in the think tank world, in the certainly the big talker world, and in the elected world are constantly part of this one directional ratchet strategy of only responding to the left, ironically, thereby giving into the left. This is why the way to fight the media is to identify our ideas and Im- implement them. And then you want to see them go nuts. They'll go nuts. They'll riot. And then you could comment on the riots and have all this cute video stuff and you know have your cake and eat it too. Get your policies and then the other side riots and the voters hate them even more. In other words, you know, because of a lot of dependency, unfortunately, you know, the demagoguery will get a lot of people to turn against certain policies. People don't like change. I think it helps us the fact that the that they'll go nuts and they'll overreact. And again, see, where others are using the radicalness of the Democrats as just a means of ignoring what we believe and ignoring the Republican betrayals, I'm here to tell you I recognize how radical the Democrats are more than anyone. And that's why I believe it's a beautiful opportunity to draw a sharp contrast. Whereas maybe if you had a more reasonable Democrat party, it would be harder for us to to win elections and push our ideas. I think they're making it easy for us. So let's do it. Let's seize the moment. We can't just be a groundhog movement. Like a groundhog coming out to see its shadow and go back in. We come out on the first Tuesday in every other November to vote Republican maybe a few weeks before to out to, to be out there with the pom-poms and uh, champion the need to vote Republican. And then we go back to sleep. We go back to sleep. If we win, well, we won. You know, kind of like if someone uh, recovers a, a fumble or gets the ball, get a touchback, you get possession of the ball and you think you won the game and you don't, start making the passes. Okay, well, you got possession of the ball, now make the passes. That's what we had two years ago. And then if they lose the House, it's going to all be about, well, we got to win back the House. We got to, Trump has to be reelected. Okay, fine. Well, Daniel, do you disagree? Do you want the Democrats? Huh? Huh? Well, that, that, that that's a strong man. I mean, okay, fine. I don't want the Democrats, but, but, could we kind of walk and chew gum at the same time and, and actually craft a plan? I mean, this is what I've been yelping about all year to anyone who, who's willing to listen on the need to have a new, whatever you want to call it, a contract with America style document, a more punchy, broad document, and then maybe something more substantial to back it up as to what is what it is we want to accomplish on the given issues of our time both both the broad philosophy behind it, what we want to achieve and the specific short-term changes we seek and how we want to pursue them and then you know eventually implement them. That's 
a discussion that I don't know how to get started. I'm, I'm not sure how to break out of the cycle because, like I keep warning you, you know, we're going to continuously have weeks worth of coverage the minute the election ends on conservative media and Fox and everything focusing on the inner workings of the Democrat primary rather than Republican primaries. The fact that we have seven or eight jerky Republicans up in the Senate from red states next cycle is going to be lost on anyone. And by the way, I just want to point out, you know, Mark Levin may is. You know, his father, Jack, rest in peace. He lost his father, um, so he's been a little bit out of it the last couple of weeks. Um, you know, he was back in business just this just last night. He made sure to mention on his Twitter feed that he's endorsing Chris McDaniel. We all seem to forget about that. I mean, th- this is what I don't understand about this just vacuous focus as well as a myopic focus on just electing Republicans in a vacuum. I mean, even if you believe that and you you know, feel that this is important, you feel you want them to gain in the Senate and maintain control of the House, but have some sort of prioritization of who you focus on. I mean, there's still one primary in Mississippi. Why is there zero focus on that? I mean, there's, you know, endless focus on all the rhinos like, you know, McSally and Heller and all these people need to win. Okay, fine. But will you give even half the focus to Chris McDaniel if you're supposedly a conservative? And, and I'm talking about those that – with megaphones that supposedly agree with what we're saying. And in, 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 in general, they'd say they agree and they want these people, but they don't focus on it. Because again, we're all – the glue that binds us all is just owning the left, fighting the media, which ironically gets us into the predicament where we eventually own – the left-wing policies <clears throat> as our own, which, as we've mentioned before, is even worse. And, you know, the bottom line is, if Democrats get back into power this time in 2020, they're not just going to tweet about what they want to do and have hot takes. Folks, they're going to do it. They're going to do it. Even if Republicans in Congress wouldn't fold or if they have the majority to a Democrat president, believe me, they're going to accomplish their stuff executively. And believe me, you won't be able to count on the courts to halt their unlawful and illegitimate stuff executively the same way the courts are halting legitimate stuff right now. Things that are backed by statute. Because we play their game. It's a one-sided game. It's heads they win, tails they win. When we're in power, we'll have someone tweeting about what we want to do and then do the opposite. And again, this is not to take away credit from some of the stuff that Trump has changed, and we've certainly, especially recently, pointed them out, especially where others haven't, such as some foreign policy things. But I will point you to a free Beacon article about the administration wavering on sanctions to Iran and really giving in on that. I, I need to delve into that a little better. I don't have, feel confident enough just basing it on that um, that alone. But I do want to make it very clear that just because Trump emphatically says something, it doesn't mean it's happening. Often it's lost on him that the opposite is really happening. And if you don't have a movement in place to call those balls and strikes, like we talked about earlier this week on our balls and strikes show, then it's meaningless. Sometimes Trump himself gets it wrong. Sometimes he wants to do the right thing, but there's jerks in the administration pushing him elsewhere. And, you know, in addition, you'll have what ironically everyone recognizes the deep state. You know, it's like all these just dogmatic MAGA Trump supporters, and I, I don't say that you know disparagingly if someone supports Trump. I mean, I'm talking about the ones that it's just all that matters is the personality and the pomp around everything, the soap opera, and just responding to the attacks on Trump and the libs, and and they're totally unconcerned about getting the policies that that supposedly we all wanted. 
is that they, they, everything's a deep state. And I'm, I'm not even making fun out of it. it. It is a problem if you understand what exactly it is and isn't. But then at the same time, they're like, yeah, stop criticizing the administration, Daniel. I'm like, well, you recognize this is a deep state. Well, so, I mean, that's where a lot of this is coming from. And, and Trump is either not strong enough or not focused enough or not understanding enough often to to a deal, deal with it. Or sometimes he is, but the very MAGA movement that supposedly has his back doesn't have his back on the substance. And that happens sometimes as well on a lot of issues. Happens all the time. Dealing with it on, on, on a full array of issues. We're totally distracted. You know, when you had the military swamp of, in, in Trump's words, generals that have been reduced to rubble pushing back on Trump with the transgender stuff, I didn't see any movement there to help him and to push the Hartzler Amendment in the budget bills to, to bar any funding for transgender monkey business in the, in the, in the military. I, I, I didn't see any of that. Because we're all distracted. We get drunk with the tweets. Well, tweets aren't policy outcomes. And believe me, the Democrats will show you that. You know, I was joking around with people. There's a part of me that really wants Democrats to win back the House because it will demonstrate to the phony, doped-up conservative media what a, that has such low expectations of their own party, what a real political party, cohesive, aggressive party like the Democrats are, can accomplish with control of just one branch of government. But then I said to myself, you know what? We're already seeing what they could accomplish with zero branches of government. <laughs> so, they, you know, there's that. And uh, this cycle is going to keep going on. It's going to go on and on. Democrats don't get fake victories. They get real ones. And again, you just look at what's happening in the courts. Even when they're officially out of power, even when we officially have a conservative majority on the highest court, the Supreme Court, even when Trump is supposedly appointing and confirming lower court judges of his choosing, careful choosing, at a record pace, you see the stuff they're accomplishing. It's jaw-dropping. It really is. That they are accomplishing immutable damage on very consequential issues simply by us not fighting or acceding at least to their game of forum-shopped lower courts to decide things. And, and and by the time it gets to the Supreme Court, even with a conservative majority, the damage is done. Is that, and as I keep repeating over and over again, even when the Supreme Court gets it, it's only in that case, and they'll come back again with the lower courts. No two cases are alike, and they'll start the clock again. I mean, if you just take immigration and election law, I mean, that's civilization right there. That is stolen sovereignty. That's why I wrote a book on it, right? Fraudulent elections, stealing our franchise, stealing our sovereignty, our borders, our our schools, our programs, our, our security. Do you understand? That is all because of the courts. Th- think about how creepy this is. You know – this is a question I'm, I'm trying to get uh, Attorney General Sessions back on the show. Um, he's just been very busy, promised to come back. Hopefully within a week we'll get him on. One of the questions I want to ask him is – because I, I know he's been very aggressive with the lower courts. He, he definitely recognized the problem. Is like, you know, what are you going to do as an independent branch of government when we're under the following predicament? It was bad enough in the days when we had Supreme Court supremacism. Where whatever they say is is it that is immutable? That's like not that's not like a an opinion in a court case. That's a law treated like a law on all public policy, binding all the branches of government and everyone else. And the Supreme Court's greater than the other branches of government. That that, that was bad enough, but now ironically, we're actually staring down the barrel of a new game the Democrats created, where. They're achieving stuff 
in the lower courts that the Supreme Court would never initiate. And indeed, if it were, you know, if you had some mechanism forcing it to immediately go there, they would reject it. And even things under Kennedy, under under you know before Kennedy re- retired, he they wouldn't it wouldn't have been this bad. Certainly now. Yet, because of all the dynamics we've been talking about the courts, they could take things there. And I want to give you two examples. Two examples of the immutable harm that we're seeing. In Georgia, we have a very close election. Shouldn't be this close, but it is for 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 governor. You know, probably um you know, you would you would imagine that Kemp will win, Republican will win. But it, you know, it's the polling all the polls have it pretty close. A federal judge said that they must count these absentee ballots without verifiable signatures. I mean, at least temporarily, they can't throw them out. And there's a number of stuff that we're seeing with photo ID and the type of IDs that they have to accept. What was this I just saw as I'm talking here? That temporary driver's licenses for foreign nationals are acceptable ID at Georgia polls. Do you understand that? Now, theoretically, you could have already become a citizen, meaning if you want to know, like, how is there not 100% straight-up voter fraud? Well, yeah, I mean, theoretically, you could have been naturalized recently, and you still have that as your driver's license, and you show that. But sure as heck, you're guaranteed to rope in a lot of people that are, are you know, maybe just green card holders, and they're not citizens. I mean – we spoke about this last year and two years ago with the lieutenant governor of uh, North Carolina, very pivotal state. We absolutely – it's proven with the data. We lost the governor's race there. McCrory lost to Cooper, and the margin of, of, of victory for Cooper by a long shot was a pot of these ballot-harvested absentee ballots – called ballot harvesting when you have third parties just gather them that were outlawed pursuant to state law and a federal court just said no you have to accept it and and what happens is ironically the states or the federal government whatever it is in these case the states dutifully listen to it we play the democrat game as if it's legitimate what they're doing they steal our heritage. They steal our sovereignty. The, 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 the Article 1, Section 4 of the Constitution, states have full power over the times, methods, and procedures of elections. There's a whole history behind that. You could Google Google Daniel Horowitz time procedures of elections courts, and you'll see all my writings on this issue on the stolen sovereignty with election law and, and the lower courts. And the Supreme Court would never render such an opinion. You know what I'm saying? Like, at least if we're going to have the supremacy, have it the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court would never say that. But ironically, the cases become moot because our side gives in, so the appeal never has time, and you know it's on to the next election. And of course, even if we do, it never, you know, fully, fully, fully shuts it down in a meaningful way. So, so that's kind of what we're dealing with here, and it's just really, really disturbing. Really disturbing. It's ins- it, it is it is terrible. And again, we're this is the glue that binds us. What's the glue that binds us? And I, I say this a little facetiously. Republicans have to win elections, right? So, hey, memo to people drunk on winning back the courts. We're not winning back the courts. And you need a movement to – one of the ideas, the Russell Kirk of our time needs to be making the case against judicial supremacy and how it's illegitimate. Can you imagine the Constitution telling us states have full authority? And to the extent there's an avenue for the feds to get in, it's only Congress. And meanwhile, the federal courts could just say, hey, whatever the Democrats want to do, that's in the Constitution. And the states have to listen. Keep in mind, Republican legislatures suck just as bad as Republicans in Congress. The only good thing we've gotten out of them is some of the you know, voting laws because they recognize you know the candidate voting fraud, voter fraud will kill them too, and the courts are just chucking that. I mean, this is immutable damage you're seeing in the elections. Democrats get so many extra votes that are illegitimate, pursuant to the real law, simply because of the courts. 
And again, decisions that the Supreme Court would never make even under Kennedy. Heck, even under Kennedy and Sandra Day O'Connor instead of Alito or Roberts. I mean, even when the Supreme Court was worse. That's how bad these forum-shopped lower courts are, and there's an endless number of them. And given that most of Trump's picks are replacing good guys, we're not really changing that. And you see every day with the Bush judges that, you know, between every Democrat judge being bad, Obama really did a number. His two terms, you know, a lot of people are focusing on the comparing the first year, how Trump is outpacing Obama. Yeah, it wasn't a priority of Obama until it was, until he caught on. And he had, you know, certainly in the second term, they packed all the courts. I mean, but then you have half the GOP nominees are progressives too. So you're dealing with an uphill supermajority that there's plenty of places they could go. And then you look at immigration. You look at immigration where it's unimaginable. Do you understand? Because of the asylum slash UAC, Flores, anti-deportation, all these rulings we have from the lower courts, we have hundreds of thousands more illegals. You could plot it on the graph. The podcast we did on Wednesday, I now have an article linked to in show notes. I have a graph that, that I promised. I have all the data showing how after all these court rulings and you know Trump administration listening to them, we've gotten hundreds of thousands of more that we caught, which means that there's hundreds of thousands of more we didn't catch. By the way, I'm sitting in my hands. I have the definitive study from the Institute for Defense Analysis prepared for the government in 2016 that was wound up being leaked, and the Center for Immigration Studies got a hold of it. It is the, the definitive data on their best estimates of how many we do not intercept, interdict, and um, how many come in. And it is staggering, the millions it is. And it's all because of these magnets and because of the asylum and tying up the border agents with the people that do surrender themselves to them so they miss the ones that don't. Could you imagine the immutable damage of, gosh, the fiscal, cultural, MS-13, the drugs, the schools, the hundreds of thousands of the most impoverished young men, a lot of them violent, not all, but a lot of them violent, and then I'm not even getting to the diseases. I'm going to have a whole article on that coming today. No one wants to touch that. Very problematic. All because of forum-shopped lower courts that never got definitively overturned, but the Supreme Court would never rule that way to begin with. This is what everyone in the legal profession on the right is missing because there's a lack of a vision. We're so happy with the bean counting, the tweets, the, oh, I appointed this number of judges Never mind the details of which circuits, which balance, which seats you're replacing. Facts don't matter. But you know what? Facts do matter to the left. They get their stuff. And here's where I wanted to bring in. I mentioned I was going to bring up two issues in the news. One of them was obviously you know, this whole business about nationalism. I want I want to discuss the the second issue that ties into this false dichotomy of not having our own way of thinking about things and we're just either reacting or reacting to those reacting or not happy with the way Republicans until now have been reacting so we're going to react in a more visceral way but again we're all off the mark. So the other big news of the week which unfortunately is now overshadowing the caravan and the border which really should be the debate is you know the reports that pipe bombs or something looking like pipe bombs or trying to verify were mailed to a bunch of Democrat figures, Obama, Biden, and DNC chair, all all sorts of Democrat figures. And you know, of course, you know, I, I joke around. Whenever you have a fight, and then the fight about the fight, the news will always be about the fight about the fight, not the fight. So, you know, really the big divide here is on immigration. This is really what we should be focusing on and what, you know, conservative media should be, again, demanding that Trump give a public address, call Congress back into session, I would argue, although time is really running out. This should have been done already and force the issue for the elections and certainly at least after the election and, and fight on this. 
But instead, now everyone's bickering over who's more violent and who's at fault. So I wasn't even going to talk about this, and we shouldn't talk about it because, again, the issues are political. This shouldn't be political. I mean, anyone who does violence or you know sends threatening things to a public official or anyone, um, we believe in law and order, and you clamp down on it, and you hang the guy when you catch him with due process at least, and like anything else. I mean, we're, we're consistent on that. There's nothing – shouldn't be an issue. But because it's become an issue, there's something important to, to reference here, and I think it's the linchpin to everything we're talking about. This false dichotomy, when we don't have a vision of what we do believe in, and we're just reacting and reacting to those reacting – we're kind of caught, I joke around with my colleagues, we're caught in this movement between what I call the mindless MAGA movement, not you know your general Trump supporter, but just the mindless MAGA shills in conservative platforms that just everything's about him and responding about him and responding to liberal media to the detriment of everything else. And the thumbsuckers, the pseudo- virtue signaler losers who their whole modus operandi is Democrats say jump, they say how high, they're always fighting on the other side's behalf, and to a large degree, they are the ones that are responsible for the rubber band effect of the people at the other end of the spectrum. There's those of us just caught in between and like, all this is wrong. And that was on full display yesterday. You had people like Mitt Romney and all those types just virtue signaling, you know, violence, like meaning automatic guilt complex as if we're responsible for this, as if we know we didn't even know what happened. We don't know what it was, especially yesterday. We really didn't. And now it does appear like it was a pipe bomb. Yes, we didn't even know what was in the packaging. Still not hundred percent sure it's a bomb. I mean, as as of talking now, although you know, again, this is very rapidly developing. But it's like both sides are equally violent, and we all need to tone it down. And like, whoa, 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 no, okay, that is totally not true. Because there's a difference between you, you know, in a country of three hundred twenty-five million, you, and, and certainly when tensions are simmering like this. You could have a loose cannon here or there speaking under the guise of any ideology, acting out in a violent way or in a dangerous way, a threatening way, and you clamp down on that. They're misreading our critique of what the left is doing. It's not, oh, you need to tone it down because this is what comes at it. No, I'm not for clamping down on free speech. It's that you have their mainstream organizations, downright funding Antifa, that are having street riots. You have the people breaking in inside the Supreme Court building, pounding on the doors of the chamber. You have, you know, hordes of people threatening members inside the halls of Cannon, Longworth, um, all the office buildings, and the Senate and the House. That's something you don't have on the right at all. There's no equivalence between that. So that's on that end of the spectrum. But these people are always looking to validate the media premise, whether it's uh, the policy itself or the soap opera on the fight over the policy. They're always going to validate the left. They're always going to be a voice for the left. And by the way, before I get to the other side of the spectrum here and and come full circle on the false dichotomy, I do have to say, detour a little bit on Mitt Romney. You cannot imagine – the destruction that will come out of Mitt Romney now coming to the Senate. This is a classic example of subtraction by addition. See, a lot of people can't understand when I say, oh, I, you know, sometimes it's better to not have certain Republicans. No, how could you ever say that? It's always, I understand you don't like them, but it's always better to have a Republican. This is what we don't understand when you don't have an agenda. It's all about so-called winning elections. You, you could have a point where The guy is not just a liberal vote. He's a voice for the left. Where Mitt Romney is going, you know, when you're in a pitched battle, when you need everyone on message, and and 
we always say this with the Kavanaugh thing. That was the one example of unity where everyone was speaking to the immorality of what the left was doing. The left always speaks to the morality of what they do. But what we have on issue after issue is our own side, so to speak, endless figures with loud and robust voices speaking to the morality of the other side and validating their stuff. Romney is going to do that on every issue. But again, this is an example of how we're so stupid. Trump endorsed him. I mean, this guy's going to be a thorn in his side beyond belief. Every day of the week, the media is going to use him. Why did Trump have to do that? I'm not saying it would have been easy to bump him off in the primary without that. But did you have to endorse him? And heck, if Trump would have endorsed someone else, and I understand Utah's a little funny. They don't like Trump there. You have the Mormon church politics, and I get it. It's a little bit more complicated, but this is an example. And, and, and again, we can't forget that Trump endorsed against Chris McDaniel. If we had a healthy movement that understood, had its own agenda rather than just reacting to the other side, we, we, we would push on this. But anyway, that's the one side of the equation. All the virtue signalers, we have to police our side. But you're never calling out the left. And in fact, people like Romney and Rubio said Antifa is a good organization. So that, 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 that's disgusting. Then you have people like Candace Owens, the partner in crime with Charlie Kirk at, at uh, Turning Point USA, that because of these losers like Mitt Romney, so they just want to go in the opposite direction. It's kind of like, uh, I'm sick of these Republicans. I'm, I'm, I'm a nationalist. So it's a similar thing, you know, where they're just like, want to respond to anything the media is doing. So you know what? This was a false flag operation. Really, the left did it. Now, I understand why people would think this. It's it's a little bit too perfect with the timing, sending it to the right people. Um, you know, we, we really don't have too much of this on the right. It's almost always the left doing this. And the timing would be perfect because the left is getting killed on this violence issue. And it would be perfect right before the election to kind of even up the score and say, oh, it's really endemic of both sides. But you, you got to wait. If, if the, the message should be one thing. We don't do this as a movement. We never condone this. It's If this is one individual, we'll find out what happened. Get the guy, use all the resources, and hang him. Now, if it happens to be that the guy really was like a liberal, hang him too. And then, But why put yourself out and look like a fool? And she was saying things like that and, and a lot of all these other people because they're so tired of always giving in to the left. So they just want to yell. I mean she said something like, I'm going to be the loudest voice for blacks in America and I'm going to like – you know, and she likes just doing that. I feel your pain, but could you use your voice if you're so concerned about it? Here's the irony. If you run around like a chicken without a head, you don't have a head, and you're not even implementing implementing the goals you say you, you want. Where is the whole Candace Owens and Charlie Kirk pressuring at the right time Trump, now it's too late, to endorse McDaniel, to endorse against Mitt Romney if you're sick of the mitts? And you want to protect your man, say, hey, man, you're self-immolating with your endorsements. But instead, rather than focusing on where it actually matters, their hills to die on are like, I I can't, I mean, just to say that everything the media peddles is really, it's a false flag. I mean, we don't know that. Definitely a possibility, but I mean, it is also possible that you could have one guy in our name. I mean, look, you know. I can't guarantee I would God forbid this should ever happen, but you know, whatever the issue is, let's say someone's really ticked off about health care. You know, there was this Democrat that evidently tried to run over a husband because upset with him for voting for a Republican who voted to repeal Obamacare. See, that type of thing I'm not gonna pin on the left. When you have like a loose crazy it's the organized violent mob protest that I think we could pin on them and very legitimately. So I can't guarantee that there won't ever be a nutcase that will would have retweeted or posted an article of mine on Facebook one time. Let's say he's upset about healthcare and acts does something stupid. You know whatever. I mean, you could have one person that does something like that. So I mean, like that's just irresponsible. You know what I mean? We're so sick of the weakness and we're sick of everyone responding. We're sick of the Bush-Romney era where we just let the left win. But what do you do? Are you smart about it or do you just scream? You know, when you're in any fight, let's say hand-to-hand combat, the most important part of your body 
is not your hands, your feet, your elbows. It's your brain. Okay, that's you, you need your brain in command. If you just shout and scream, you're not going to win the fight. If we want to create a symphony in an orchestra, if you just take a bunch of pots and start clinging them, you just have noise. Man, I, I want to be loud. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna punch the media in the face. I will, I'm all for that, but I mean, you're not gonna get anyone more hardcore than me. But you got to do it right, and often we do it at the detriment of what really does matters. And often they'll wind up siding with what doesn't. Some of these same people are supporting the Muslim Brotherhood against MBS and Trump, by the way, for that matter. <laughs> So that's the lesson. We need to reset the baseline. We need to have our own baseline, not one that is relative to what the left is doing at any given moment, and we're just responding to it. And that's why, that is why I'm committed to starting this discussion the day after the election. And I think someone who's going to be elected, God willing, Chip Roy is going to serve as that fulcrum inside Congress to jumpstart the election, to I mean, to jumpstart non-election talk about what really matters. And I think for that, there's a lot to be hopeful with. I understand there's a limit to what one man can do, but you know, what one of you and I forget who you are. Um, you know who you are. Um, reached out to me on Twitter. I can't remember when it was. Saying, "Well, how is he going to be different from Jim Jordan and Mark Meadows? Find another." Believe me, he will be different. He will be a different type of congressman. You're going to see that. And uh, but he's going to need reinforcements, and we need a plan on that. We're here for the long run. We're not here to be a flash in the pan and respond to uh, every little thing and get our face on on Fox News and get our hot take. Steady Eddie. We're in this for the long haul because the left certainly is, and we need to adapt our strategies, adapt our baseline to pursue the true, tested, timeless principles we believe in rather than failing by doubling down on the same old failed strategies, getting frustrated, having false dichotomies, false fights, and fracturing over it, and then adopting foreign concepts that really don't help us. Thank you for listening. God bless you all. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience.